time as we go through the book of Ruth would be an encouragement to you. Uh, we're going to be spending the next seven weeks, we're in an eight-week series looking at this book, really talking about the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God amidst life's pain. Last week we started in the first part of the chapter uh, one of the book of Ruth. We're going to be looking at the latter part of the chapter. Uh, in a moment I'll give a little bit of context, but I'd like to start off with a day that was very tumultuous for me uh, a long time ago when I was back in high school and it became to be known as Black Saturday. No, not Black Friday, but Black Saturday. Several of you might know Yellowstone National Park. You might have had the opportunity to have traveled there. It's near and dear to my heart. Obviously, you know that uh, several years ago, my family moved from Boulder, Colorado to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is essentially at the southern edge of Grand Teton National Park, which then leads into Yellowstone. Uh, my father is a born and bred Wyoming in or Wyomingite, however you would want to say it, uh, from Casper, and their lifelong dream was to retire in Jackson. So as we would spend time in our lives growing up, a lot of our time would be up in Yellowstone, enjoying the natural beauty, looking obviously at uh, the wildlife that is there, looking at the geysers that are there, looking at all of the different aspects that Yellowstone has to offer. One of my greatest joys right now is actually following 399, which is a mother grizzly who has had four, yes, four cubs. And we just love watching where she is at, where she's located, and obviously she's sort of the showcase for the Wyoming wildlife. Interesting enough, too, just came to find out that there has been a sighting of a badger wolverine, which is extremely rare in uh, Grand Teton National Park. In fact, the park uh, says that they estimate that there's only four or five of them in the entire park, and it's extremely rare to see them. So why am I talking about Black Saturday? Well, it was a day like any other, and in fact, back in June of 1988, a lightning strike hit a few groups of trees. And in the beginning, the forest regiment decided that they would let this fire burn in a let it burn policy. For reality, that's not a bad thing, because sometimes sort of reforestation can be a good thing. However, as this fire continued to burn, it went through the park, and in August, the winds began to shift. Winds started to move at 40 to 50 miles per hour, and the fire began to grow out of control. Reports of the fire actually said that the, the height of the actual fire was some 200 to 300 feet in the air. Devastation began, and when it was all over, 1.4 million acres of the park had been destroyed. 9,000 firemen worked in the effort. 117 airplanes dumped 1 million gallons of fire retardant in an effort to try to save the park. In the end, 36% of Yellowstone National Park had been devastated. And it would be different and never the same for 100 years. 
Areas that we had traveled to, spots that we had been, things that we would remember would no longer be the same. And it was interesting because in an instant, on a fateful day, things went from natural beauty to destruction, devastation, darkness, and emptiness. I want to ask a question right now. How many of you in your lives have experienced a time where, for lack of a better word, a forest fire raged through your life? Things were beautiful, things were strong, things were good, things were what they should be. And off of a small lightning strike that was out of your control, the winds began to rage to the point that the fire literally raged out of control in your life, devastating the areas around you. For some of you, that might be in a relationship. For some of you, that might be with someone whom you knew and loved, and you received a report that they had been struck in with a life-threatening illness. Others of you, that might be that you were working hard and did everything you could for a business, spent several years developing it, growing it, doing everything you could, and for situations outside of your control, that business has been devastated. Others of you, that might be that you've done everything you can to rear a child to the best of your ability, growing them in the love and the care of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, only to have them reject not only you, but Jesus. And your hearts have been devastated, and you've been left empty. This morning, we're going to be speaking to the aspect of emptiness expressed through the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a wonderful four-chapter book that's kind of housed in a very deep and dark spiritual time for the people of God. It comes after the book of Judges, and in fact, as we go into the beginning of the chapter, it starts off with, in a time when the judges ruled. And so to sort of give this setting for everyone, we're in a time where there is a famine in the land for God's people, and a woman by the name of Naomi has to leave with her husband to the land of Moab to survive. For a while, things to seem to be going well. In fact, actually, she's abundantly blessed. She has her husband and two sons, and her two sons marry two Moabite women. Now, in the culture, we have to remember and recognize that for a female, marriage to a male was essentially your security. It would be similar to us having a large 401k or a large retirement fund or all of these things set up for the future. You would rely on your husband to provide for you. And then in an instant, things begin to change. She loses not only her husband... But her two sons pass away as well. Naomi is left with nothing. She's left with no security. She's left with no opportunity to move forward for herself. She finds herself in a foreign land with no provision or no protection or no guidance or direction. Things have gone from good to bad to worst to destitute. And that's where we find ourselves. Now, perhaps some of you might not be in that type of a situation. 
But perhaps, as we've said before, maybe there's something in your life that has left you feeling empty, alone, wondering where God is, wondering what God is doing. And the joy that we're going to see as we travel through the book of Ruth is amidst the emptiness, amidst the devastation, amidst the loneliness, amidst the unknown, God's fingerprints and God's hand is sovereignly in control of the entire situation. What I love about the book of Ruth is God's name is mentioned, but God's speaking is silent. People kind of wonder sometimes, where is God? What is he doing? And silently and quietly, God is working out a restorative situation for Naomi, but then also her daughter-in-law, Ruth, which the book is titled after, through what we come to know as a gentleman by the name of Boaz. We'll be introduced to Boaz in a few short periods, but Boaz comes to be known as the kinsman redeemer. That term that you will hear is going to become central to the book of Ruth. We've said before, Ruth is essentially the, the heroine, but I want to be very careful. She's not the central focus. Behind the scenes, sovereignly, God is the hero. The kinsman redeemer truly is God, seen through the position of Boaz. That's where our hope lies. That's where our joy is. But this morning we find ourselves in the midst of the story and things have gone from bad to worse to absolute destitution. Interestingly enough, what happens in the beginning of the chapter is Naomi goes to her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and says, you know what? God's dealt me a bad hand. Go back to the people of Moab. Find yourself a husband so that they can provide for you. It's the logical choice. It's the right thing to do. I can't provide for you so that you too can go and hopefully have a good life. Go back, find someone in Moab that you can marry so that they can provide and give you what it is that you need. We see in the beginning, she says, you know, even if right now today I were to marry and then I was to produce two sons for you, do you want to wait that long and hurt and struggle and be in pain? And so through that, interestingly enough, we see the two daughters making a decision. Orpah, we've said before, by the name, actually means the back of the neck. And it's derived from the idea that Orpah, in some sense, she gets a bad rap, but she's really doing what her mother-in-law is asking. Go back, find things for yourself in Moab, and figure out a life for you. So Orpah turns, and the reason that we hear back of the neck is it's sort of the last view that you get of Orpah, and she fades off into essentially the darkness, or if it were a play, she fades off of the stage. But then we hear of Ruth. But Ruth. And then sort of what is the, I don't want to, 
elevate scripture, but sort of the central line, verse 16, it says, you know, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. This huge proclamation of faith doesn't logically make sense. Logically, she should go back to be with the people of Moab. But she says, Naomi, no, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you until you die. And may God make it so. I'm going to trust in something that I don't know and I don't understand. But I'm going to walk with you. A huge leap of faith and a huge leap of action. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning in the story. Ruth, who also has lost a husband of her own, who is also destitute, is choosing to trust in a sovereign God amidst the unknown and amidst the emptiness. This morning we're going to ask a simple question as we travel through this passage. And that is this, what do we do when life brings us emptiness? I don't need to see a show of hands, but has anyone ever felt empty? Alone? Concerned? I love this quote by James de la Vega. James de la Vega is a visual artist of Puerto Rican descent, known for his street aphorisms and muralist art. He resides in New York City. This is what he says. Why does the feeling of emptiness occupy so much space. Artistically speaking, he's talking to a blank canvas, but I think theologically, emotionally, deep within our soul, we look and we say, why does the feeling of emptiness occupy so much space? What do we do in that emptiness? What do we do in that loneliness? What do we do in that despair? Again, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to pick up essentially in verse 19b. I've laid the context of the first 19 verses. We've seen, obviously, Naomi travel with her husband because there's a famine to the land of Moab. She's lost not only her husband, but her two sons and is destitute. She's turned to Orpah and to Ruth and said, go find yourself a man so that you can live and prosper. Orpah, by the back of the neck, has turned and obeyed and exited the stage. But Ruth has said again, no, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so they head back to the land of Bethlehem, where they are from. Interestingly enough, ironically, the word Bethlehem is Bethlehem in Hebrew, which means the land of bread. So there's been a famine in the land of bread. But we're going to go back. We're going to see what we can do. Hopefully something will be figured out. Hopefully something will happen. And so the two of them turn and they take what is a 50-mile journey back to the land. Now for us, we need to remember and recognize that 50 miles isn't a big deal. I mean, 50 miles is just heading into Des Moines to get some groceries and turn around again and come back to Panora. 
But in her day, that would be as if we were traveling again to a foreign country. It would be as if we were moving to Latin America or to the Orient or to a land that was very unfamiliar but now re-familiar. So you have to see the context that Naomi is returning home, but Ruth is moving to something that's completely unknown, unfamiliar for her. And that's where we pick up in this story in verse 19b. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. A life that was full, a life that had promise, a life that had opportunity, a life that was secure by all common sense, had been ripped apart piece by piece to where Naomi had become destitute and full of despair. No options were left but to return back to the land of which she had moved from in an effort to secure perhaps a better life with her husband and her two sons. She comes back to the point that individuals, when they see her, don't even recognize her. Can this be Naomi? She was so full of life, so vibrant, so joyous, so secure. What in the world has happened to her? She's been blackened by a fire. Her life has been destroyed by the ravages of destruction. Why is she here? What's going to happen to her? Or better yet, give up because there isn't any future. What do we do when life brings emptiness? Interestingly enough, we look and essentially in sort of that first part or the last part of verse 19, what I would encourage us to be reminded of is, is that at times, life can beat you up pretty bad. Has anybody been beaten up by life? You've been doing the best that you can. You've been doing everything that you should. And again, in this analogy, a lightning bolt strikes. And at first you're like, ah, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. But then on some faithful day, or some faithful week, or some faithful month, or some faithful year, the fire rages out of control. You do the best that you can. You send everything that you can do, every resource that you know, every opportunity that you have, every prayer that you can give, and yet the fire rages out of control, bringing destruction and devastation. Leaving you feeling empty. Again, for some of us, that might be through the loss of a loved one. For others of us, that might be through a challenging relationship. For others of us, that might be through our children. 
Others, it might be through a business or it might be a combination of those things where you're sitting there saying, how long will this fire rage? When will it stop and where is God? And what I love about this story is as we look at the temporal, as we look at the immediate, as we look at the situation of Naomi and Ruth, by all means, on a temporal level, there is the opportunity to say that God isn't there. There is no God. If God really was there, this wouldn't be happening to me. And yet through it all, in it all, and above it all, God's hand is right there. Bringing about a story of redemption that no one could ever fathom. Something so different, something so divinely designed that it could only come from God. I love the picture as we set it up when we view our Savior on the cross. What a crazy story about a Redeemer who brings life to mankind eternal. When the world watches Christ on the cross, they think he's been destroyed. The enemy rejoices and says, I've done my work. The king is no longer there. The world is left destitute, destroyed, and destructed. And yet right around the corner comes the resurrection of Jesus from the grave through our kinsman redeemer who brings life and prosperity to his people. Careful on prosperity. I'm not preaching the prosperity of the gospel. I'm not saying that it means that your life is perfect, that everything goes well. What I'm talking about is the prosperity of life through our Savior Jesus Christ in his kingdom, being united with him as a child of God, secure in the promises, knowing and acknowledging that you have eternal life. And as Keith had said before in his prayer, nothing can take that away from you. It is secure. And so we come to a spot where it looks like the life of Naomi and Ruth is over. We look and continue on and we see in essentially verses 20 through 21 some interesting comments. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Interesting that the word Naomi means essentially beautiful or blessed, peaceful. And Mara means bitter. If you sort of take what is prescribed in Naomi, it's sweet. And Naomi says, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. My life once was sweet, but God has afflicted me. Therefore, I am bitter. Sometimes, when life hands you a bad deck of cards, what do you do? You play it to the best of your ability, and sometimes it doesn't work out, does it? 
Interesting enough in these verses, even though we recognize that life can beat you up pretty bad, we have to remember that it actually, in fact, might beat you up so bad as you come to a point of emptiness in your soul. Lovingly, is anyone bitter at God right now? I don't need to know. You don't need to raise your hand. But can you identify with what is going on in Naomi's heart? God, life once was sweet, but this has occurred. That's happened. This unexpected thing has happened, and I'm bitter. You've dealt me a bad hand. Oftentimes, people will kind of beat up Naomi for this. But what I want to tell you is, is that it's okay to be bitter, but watch what happens with your bitterness. Interesting enough, there was a time in my life where I went through a very deep challenge, was very broken. And I remember a friend came to me, and at that time, sort of at the most bitter point, she gently said, you know, you can either become more bitter or you can become better. And interestingly enough, at that point, to be honest with you, that quote stung because I was hurting. I was lonely. I was destitute. I was empty. But more and more as I've lived my life and reflect back on that quote, praise God for it. Because at that point, as broken as I was, as bitter as I was, I made a decision and I said, God, I want my life to be better. Whatever that is. And God, through his sovereignty and his goodness and his grace, has made it better but I had to go through bitter to get to better. Some of you right now might be in a very bitter spot in your life. Some of you might be wondering where God is and my loving encouragement to you is not to become more bitter or angered at God, but rather to turn to him like Ruth has turned and said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Faith with action. Moving from bitter to better. It's interesting, this quote, uh, kind of based off of Psalm 90 verses 13 through 14, I think speaks to the soul of what we're talking about through the story of Ruth and sort of God's hands through us. When I say I feel so empty, God says, I created you with a longing in your heart that only I can fill. What do we run after when we're empty? Power, possessions, lust, greed. And we chase after these things only to feel what? More empty. So many people are empty in the world, chasing after things that they think will bring them fulfillment, bring them purpose, bring them sustenance. And through sort of a rush, they feel full for a moment 
only to find that what they're feeding themselves is not a nourishing meal, but it's leading more and more to their own personal destruction. Fill your emptiness with the fullness of Christ. Don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has left me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. That might be how you feel right now. And please hear me, I'm not trying to belittle it, because I was there too. But lovingly, encouragingly, promisingly continue to read the story or in my Bible as it's set up. Turn the page. Keep going. Keep trusting. Keep recognizing that God has a plan and a purpose for your life that can be so beautiful, so fulfilling, and so wonderful when you surrender it to him. Sometimes life can beat you up pretty bad. In fact, it might beat you up so bad that you can come to a point of emptiness in your soul. It's a hard thing. It's not an easy thing. It's kind of funny to stand in a pulpit and sit and say, sometimes emptiness isn't a bad thing. But I'm going to tell you that sometimes emptiness isn't a bad thing if it's handled in the way that brings about a betterment in the fullness of Jesus Christ. Some of the most full people that I see in Jesus have been the most empty or gone through one of the most empty situations in their life. And yet that fullness brings about a joy to others that's based upon the emptiness that they once went through. And in this weird, convoluted way, it's a beautiful thing. It's bitter sweet. In verse 22, we move to this point where we're just on the cusp of a transition. We recognize that both Naomi and Ruth have returned from Moab. They're now back in Bethlehem, the land of bread, symbolically but also important. We recognize that place, an important aspect in the story of redemption through our Savior Jesus Christ. And they've arrived at the time when the barley harvest was just beginning. Interestingly enough, they arrive and they are sort of looked at with not necessarily disdain, but amazement of can this really be Naomi? Man, the last time that I saw her, however many years it's been, they were so blessed. Things were so good. What in the world happened to her? But there's this glimmer of hope. 
because they've returned and there's no longer a famine in the land and the harvest is about to begin. What we see here is this, is that even though life can beat you up pretty bad and in fact it might beat you up so bad that you come to a point in empty of your, emptiness of your soul, yet it's in these moments that we must trust that the fullness of Christ is just around the corner. I don't want this to be a dangling the carrot message. Does that make sense? I don't want to be like, oh yeah, you know, just keep plugging and chugging, right? But I think it's so important because the fullness of Christ is just around the corner. What do I want to talk about there? It may mean that the situation still is challenging because we're in this story and things are still challenging for Naomi and for Ruth. In a moment, we see a story that only God can design where Boaz comes forward and becomes a kinsman redeemer and the two essentially are given more than they can possibly fathom. For us, we might be sitting there saying, where's my Boaz? When's it going to happen for me temporally? And lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is I pray that it does. I pray that in, in this time, in this day, you see the joy of the Boaz through what? Blessing. But that may or may not be the case. But what I can promise all of us in Jesus Christ is that we will see the joy of Boaz when our kinsman redeemer returns us home back to our true husband, which is our Savior Jesus Christ. Analogous. Because we as the church are the bride of Christ. What a joyous day that will be. What a blessing that will be. My prayer is, is that your situation, whatever it might be, might be filled. That things will be better. But what I can also tell you is, is rather than trying to fill yourself with temporal, fill yourself with Christ. And when you fill with yourself with Christ, the temporal begins to fade away. The concerns that are there become less important. Less of the focus. Less of the world and more of Christ. Interestingly enough, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, To trust God in the light is nothing. But to trust him in the dark, that is faith. I love times of light. I pray for times of light for all of us. I pray that there are times where you're heading down the highway in this analogy and you can see as far as you need to go. But lovingly, I think we all recognize that the headlights aren't always on and the vision isn't always clear as we travel through this thing called life. That there are those moments when those heavy storms come, when the snow rises up and blows and we can't see it all. Or if we use the analogy of the fire, that the smoke is so thick that we can't see any direction. We don't know what is up or down or right or left. And all we can do is stand and pray and trust in faith. How many of you have been in a dark time? How many of you lovingly would say that that dark time was where the Lord deeply increased your faith? 
How many of you would say that, you know, in the grand scheme of life, that's not necessarily a bad thing? Let me take this another step further. How many of you would say, you know, Lord, if it's that I must go through the darkness to see your fullness, then take me through the darkness again? It's a scary thing, isn't it? But knowing that the fullness of Christ is the result of the darkness is a blessed thing. We go back to Jesus and we look as he hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is in my opinion the darkest time in history. And yet in the darkness time of history, the brightest time in the history was right around the corner. Lovingly, I pray that your life is filled with light. But if your light is filled with darkness, if your life is dark and the fires rage, may I encourage you that that is the moment when faith can become so real, so beautiful, so sweet. We look at this and what I want to kind of encourage us in and what I'd like to sort of say to the point of this passage is simply this, that when life brings emptiness, joy is just around the corner. Let your emptiness bring you to the fullness of Christ. It's not an easy thing. But it's a beautiful thing when Christ becomes all that we desire. Interestingly enough, we talk through the aspect of challenges, of struggles, of emptiness. And it's something that isn't unfamiliar to those who experienced Christ in his day. We read in the words of 1 Peter 4, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, the following. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. It's not an unusual experience for a follower of Jesus Christ to experience in his sufferings. In fact, it's an identification that we truly are unified with Jesus Christ. Suffering is part and partial, or the name of the game, as we walk with Jesus. Now, I don't pray a big dose of suffering on all of us. That's not what I want. But realistically, lovingly telling you that suffering is part of being a follower of Jesus because it rightly identifies us with him and his suffering. And when handled in a way that draws us to the fullness of Christ, it brings about a sweet relationship with our Savior when we realize his suffering for us and what he's done so that we might have life through him. We look back and I remember traveling back to Yellowstone over several years 
and little by little watching essentially the devastated area. And in the beginning, the first couple of years as you traveled into the region that had been raged and ravaged by the fire, it was an interesting aspect. You literally felt like you went from life to death. You went from this abundant, beautiful forest where you look and there's pine trees and different animals and different aspects and shadows of light coming from down into the trees. And you just look around and you think, you know, surely this is what heaven would be like. And then literally in a line or an instant, you travel from where life was abundant to where the fire had raged and it was scarred and marred and black and dirty and ugly and destitute and torn apart. And you say, certainly nothing can come from this. And then little by little by little, over the years, as you travel back, you begin to see the aspect of new life and growth in the forest. Little by little by little, the forest actually is growing to become healthier and stronger and more beautiful than what it could have been had it been allowed to stay where it was. The reality of the fire, as ravaging as it was, as, made, as destitute as it made that land, it actually has enhanced the park through the reforestation process. Now in my lifetime, I will never see what it once was because I will not live past the hundred years of devastation. But little by little, those who travel to that area will see the newness of life. And someday, my son, my grandchildren, Lord willing, will see an even more beautiful forest that once was there. Similarly enough, in that analogy, my prayer to all of you is this. That perhaps your life is empty. Perhaps you felt that destruction. And again, when life brings emptiness, joy is just around the corner. Let your emptiness bring you to the fullness of Christ. That through this reforestation process, that people would see a deeper fullness in you. And that they would want to know more about the God whom is and the God whom you love. May that be your testimony to others. This morning we've talked about the emptiness expressed. We've asked this question of what do we do when life brings us emptiness. We've traveled through this story and we've recognized indeed that at times life can beat you up pretty bad. We've also recognized, in fact, that it might beat you up so bad that you've come to a point of emptiness in your soul. And lovingly, humbly, graciously, if you move and say, I want to become better, Lord, guide and direct me, you are at a point where you can move into the fullness of Christ from the emptiness that you feel. When life brings emptiness, joy is just around the corner. Let your emptiness bring you to the fullness of Christ. For you eager beavers out there, my encouragement is this. The story doesn't end here. 
we're at a pivotal turn as we move into chapter 2 where we begin to see God's sovereign hand working through ways that no one can possibly fathom. And into the stage walks Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And little by little, sovereignly through the hand of God, Boaz becomes one who redeems both Naomi and Ruth to a life that they never, ever could have possibly imagined. Some of us might be looking right now in our life and saying, you know, I went through a time of emptiness, but as I walked with God, as I trusted in Him, as I saw Him and He saw me through, I can't believe the life that God has given. And I praise Him for it. May that be your light. May that be your testimony. May that be your joy. Move from bitter to better through the fullness of Christ. Let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll reflect on this for a moment and then um, if you can, we will stand, we will sing our concluding hymn. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for the story of Ruth. Father, thank you for this just amazing book that's kind of nestled in a very dark spiritual time for the people of God. Father, thank you that in it, as we look through that story, as we look at the temporal aspect, it is one where anyone would look and say, there can't be a God. I mean, if, if God's around, this wouldn't happen. But Father, thank you that through the story, we see your fingerprints and your hands sovereignly guiding and directing the life of Naomi and Ruth to a point that as they trust, as they move, they begin to experience the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, but truly the kinsman redeemer, our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Father, I pray that for those of us that might be here this morning, for those of us that might be listening, for those of us that we know that might feel empty, destitute, alone, that through you, through your love, your mercy, and your grace, through your sovereign hand, that they can be full and full in our Savior, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would guide them and direct them and encourage them. I pray that you would use us. Or Lord, if we're in that spot right now, that we would make a choice and that we would trust your hand. Father, it's not an automatic, perfect cure, meaning that it just zaps us out of what we might go through. But Lord, as we continue to trust in you, little by little, day by day, as we look to you for comfort, peace, rest, joy, we begin to realize truly how full we are in you and how truly blessed we are. May that be our courage. May that be our strength. May that be our song. And may that be our story as we go out to the world that's lost and hurting around us. May we present to them the hope of our Savior Jesus Christ, our kinsman, Redeemer. And Lord, perhaps maybe we use the story of Ruth to help someone understand that God understands them, the hurt and the pain that they are going through. And may that bring hope and light and life to their lives. Father, thank you that through emptiness, 
we can come to your fullness. And thank you that through that whole thing, you never leave nor forsake the people whom you love. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. If you're able, would you be kind enough? We'll stand to sing our closing hymn.